Welcome back to the 17th episode of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where we go along with the chronological reading of the Bible and talk about the passages that we are going to be reading. First, I want to issue another kind of correction or, or emendation to something we talked about a few weeks ago. So uh, I think it was maybe last episode when they carried the Ark into battle and then it was stolen by the Philistines and we kind of talked through why did they do that? You know, why did they think they should do that? And as I was reading Numbers this past week in the kind of vengeance on the Midianite story in Numbers 31 verse 6 specifically, they are told to take, quote, the vessels of the sanctuary into battle. Oh, uh, and so it doesn't say the Ark specifically, but I just noticed that. and was like, oh, well, I guess at least that time they uh, were ordered to carry those things into battle. Because I think we had kind of said that it was presumptuous of them to do that. And I think that it, if the Lord didn't tell them to do that in that battle, then that's still true. But just that it wasn't like a totally new idea or it wasn't beyond the pale for them to take sacred things into battle with them. Yeah, that's great. So the first question that we have covers is a little bit of a callback to the very first episode, but I think it's pertinent here and now, now that we're getting into the kind of reading Samuel and Chronicles side by side. And often you'll notice that the telling of Samuel and Chronicles is different. Sometimes Chronicles gives us more details about something. Sometimes, occasionally, it will almost appear to contradict what Samuel said. I don't think it really ever does, but but I think the question that emerges out of that is just, again, for us to kind of talk through, like, what, when the Bible does history, when the Bible tells history, how is that the same and how is it different than a modern academic presentation of history? Oh, that's a great question. So one of the things we have to be careful of is we can't let ourselves read the Bible as though it's a 21st century book written with 21st century rules, because we know that it's not, right? Right. It's written a long time ago by cultures with different values than ours. We tend to assume that whatever our values are, are Yahweh's values. That is just a human assumption. And one of the things the Bible does is it shows us often where that's wrong. One of the realms where that happens is in the telling of history. So the exactitude of details and numbers um, or of the exact chronology of a series of events are not nearly as important to ancient historians as the meaning of a series of events or Mm -hmm. a way of explaining a current situation through the telling of history, the history being told specifically to explain what's happening today. So we see in Samuel, we have more of a, uh, I don't want to say a cynical telling of the story, but a less flattering one. Mm -hmm. Um, We do see David, we get pictures of David and Samuel that we don't get in Chronicles. Um, A lot more of his prowess as a warrior. Um, We get all this time where he's spent um, running from Saul that mm-hmm. we don't get in Chronicles because Chronicles starts, the story picks up after or with Saul's death. Right. And so that is, that's positive for David, right? It's not that all of Samuel is, is anti-David, but Samuel's much more willing to, to show us David's flaws mm-hmm. than Chronicles is. And the reason for that is because I think they're written at two different times. Mm-hmm. Chronicles is written later. 
And in, and Chronicles is written at a time when they're trying to give hope and reflect on how um, the people of God are in the situation that they're in. And so it's a, a reflective history and it's intended to be optimistic, right? Mm-hmm. It ends in a very positive way. Right. And so David is this, this important figure in that history. And so they're cautious about telling negative stories about him because he's a hero for them. Right. Um, I, think that, I think that that's what's going on in particular with Samuel and Chronicles. But as you read the Bible, just please avoid the assumption that if the Bible's not doing history like we would do history today, then it's done something wrong. Because that's just not the case. Well, and I think even zeroing in a little bit more on, you know, so biblical history is theological history, you know, meaning, yes, I mean, I I agree with what Mm -hmm. you said, that it's that they're they're telling history more about what are the meaning, what is the meaning of these events, you know, certainly when they happen, but then also for us today, like the assumption is, is that this is a living story that we, the audience, we, the hearers are still very much a part of. And since it's an it's an Israeli or not Israeli, it's a it's a Israelite uh, history that we're telling, you know that that means that it's wrapped up in the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And so you know Samuel King's Chronicles, they allude to obviously kind of international things happening and and what we would think of as quote unquote the history of it, but that they're very much focused on the dynamic between God and the people, their disobedience, his faithfulness, his judgment. Uh, You know, when a king is deposed or is overthrown, it's said that Yahweh, you know, I'm not quoting, but basically that Yahweh removed him, Mm -hmm. which is a a way of telling that, you know, you can also tell it because of all the political circumstances that led to that happening. And both are true, right? Right. Like neither of those is, is mutually exclusive. One of the things that can happen when we are um, engaging with the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when we have these these details that, again, appear to be different or at least have different emphases or different perspectives, is we can feel like, wait a second, if everything isn't literally true, then how can I trust this book in other places, right? So the resurrection needs to be a literal historical event that happened pretty much the way that we see it in the in the gospels for our faith to be what our faith is there could be i mean of course there could be some different emphases or or perspectives but then does that mean that if this story of david has numbers that are exaggerated or twisted or perspective differences between samuel and chronicles or perhaps even details that are not literally accurate um, does that mean that we can no longer trust the resurrection stories? And the answer to that is no. Um, we have different genres of literature all through the Bible. Um, the Bible is telling stories in different ways. And we like to think of it as one cohesive book, and it is one cohesive story. But it's told through many different authors at many different times with many different priorities. And we need to look at each of those as they are, not in a not as though it was being written as one um, cohesive story today. And that sort of you kind of touched on this, and it it gets a little bit into what I was going to talk about in the summary, just in terms of the actual differences between Samuel and Chronicles. You know, growing up in the faith, I w- often wondered like, why are these stories back to back? You have Samuel and Kings, which tells the story. 
And then immediately you have Chronicles, which tells the same story again. And it can just be like, why? Why do we need to read these things again? Uh, we've talked, we've referenced in the past that the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament puts the Chronicles at the very end, you know, which I think makes a lot of sense and, and brings out a lot of different mm-hmm. emphasis, which is good. But I think one of the benefits of the Christian ordering, when you know what you're looking at, when you know what to watch for, is that you can you can kind of see, quote unquote, see the same events told differently, not yes. contradictorily, but just told from two different perspectives. And so it's offering a sort of a breadth of perspective mm-hmm. that there is not just one single way to tell these stories about David and Solomon and everything else. And the Bible itself is telling us that, like there's actually multiple ways. And I think you even see that. And I've appreciated this with the reading plan that will hop back and forth in and out of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. You know, so you read a story about David hiding from Saul and then you hop over and read the Psalm, which is not the same sort of telling as what Samuel just did, right. but it is adding or it's another dimension to, you know, what just happened uh, that isn't just telling us, you know, Samuel also isn't just telling us historical facts, but the Psalms are not focused on the facts of what happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not to say that the Psalms aren't reflecting reality, not at all, but just that they are, they're poems, they're songs, and so they are a different sort of thing. Uh, you know, if I, I'm not married, but like if I were to get married and somebody were to video record that, that would be one way of telling the story. But then if I like wrote a song about it later, that would be a, a different way of telling. And both together kind of paint Absolutely. A, a, a more whole picture of, of what's happening. And we even see that when we cross into the New Testament, there are four Gospels right. back to back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not just because each one has content that the others don't. In fact, most of, the, in the first three especially, most of the stories are told more than once between right. the three. Um, the reason for them all to be back to back to back to back is that they each have a different perspective Mm-hmm. on a different emphasis on Jesus and his ministry and his mission. And that's also what's happening here with Samuel and Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, last question that I had, and more of just a, not that I expect you to necessarily have an answer, but again, so thinking back to these stories and, and jumping over to the Psalms, like David is on the run, you know, Taliban hiding in the caves, you know, sort of a thing. <laughs> uh, what? How... And these psalms are attributed to him, and they're they're anchored to like these specific moments. But like, where is he getting paper and pens, or like, how are these things written so that mm-hmm. something became Psalm fifty-seven or Psalm fifty-two? Yeah. yeah, does that question make sense? Like, Absolutely just just kind of more of like a a, a practical question of like how how yeah. do we suppose these psalms were actually composed and and written and and all sure. that? Sure. So. I think that there are a couple of possibilities here that I I think um, almost all of I'm willing to say yes to. Um, The one thing that I do not think is that the Psalms are completely disconnected from the story of David Mm -hmm. and were were inserted much later, given the title of, you know, and and attached to a, a historical situation, but it actually has no bearing to that situation. And there are a lot of scholars that think that, right? So there's a psalm floating around. It kind of fits with the David story. So 500 years later, somebody put of David when da 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 da. I don't think that's what happened. It could. I just I don't I don't believe so. What I think happened is one of a few things. Either 
um, David did write these psalms about the things that were happening to them as they were happening. And so, yeah, that would have him in the early mornings doing devotions, um, composing probably in his mind, and then later on writing it down. When you did not have a laptop with you or a smartphone or a notebook at all times, you got very good at composing things in your mind and then at a later point writing them down. That was a very common thing in the culture. that and, I mean, more than likely he wouldn't have kept them to himself, right? Right. They'd have been sung. Around the campfire that night, he would have taught everybody the song he wrote, Mm -hmm. you know, that day. Or maybe they would even have kind of helped. Contributed. Collaboration. I think it's also possible that this was written by David later on as he reflected on what was happening to him. Um, and I think also, and I, I'm I'm very confident that some of the Psalms are this way. In the retelling of the David story, there are times when that story is retold through song. And so a, a Psalm is written by the people retelling the David story for that event mm-hmm. um, as part of the retelling. So you can imagine a moment where you're reading from the scroll of 1 Samuel and you read a story and then take a break in the synagogue service to sing this song that has been written to help you connect with what David mm-hmm. is experiencing in the in the moment. I think that's fine. When they say that they're of David, that can mean by David or that can mean regarding David. Mm-hmm. And... I think that some of them are written by David. Um, I think some of them are probably written about these stories. And in the Hebrew, a lot of the times there's style differences that don't make a whole lot of sense for the same. I mean, it could be the same person. People have different styles sure. as they write. But the, I would be surprised if some of these were not some worshipful, um, devoted person who wrote a poem after hearing the story of David. And that poem got used in the worship well, and I, I guess I would say that sometimes people can get hung up on like, well, but who really wrote things or like blah, 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 blah. And I like I understand from an authority angle, like why people can get hung up on that. But I think that a huge assumption that is made before a lot of those debates happen is that these ancient cultures were individualistic like mm-hmm. ours are. And so something that is produced has a single author. And my my general position would be that almost nothing is sourced from a single author. I mean, the Lord, obviously, but like everything we have in the state that we now have it, you know, has, has passed through many minds and many hands. And that that's all, and we talked about this before, that's all part of the inspiration process. Like, I think we have the scriptures that God wants his people to have, yeah. including bits that might have been added later or touch-ups or, you know, whatever else. You know, I, I think that, it, that the whole thing is part of the process. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, one morning David sat down and wrote the entirety of Psalm 54, you know, and then I guess mailed it to somewhere where it would sit. Until, you know, I mean, that just is right. not how it happened. That's just not how it worked. Well, I think about so this is, again, going back like the beginning of the podcast, the book of Genesis. How was it compiled or how was it written? Mm-hmm. And I think that Moses is the primary author for the book of Genesis. But he would not have told the stories for the first time in the writing. Right. Right. right? They would have been told before that. And primary then, scribe, maybe. Right. That's the way to put it. Yeah. But the, 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 they would have been told before then. He right. would have heard and known them. He would have also retold those stories. And what, what we find with, I mean, your family around the table sees this happen. When parents tell their kids the story about when a child is born or how the parents got together. 
Um, those stories are different every time they're told, mm -hmm. slightly. The same mm -hmm. words are not used. Now, what we do with these stories is we dive in and we pick apart each one mm -hmm. of the words because we are confident that we have the Bible that God wants us to have. But those, those stories are living and they're reflected back. And mm -hmm. the way that the kids like to hear the story is going to affect the way the parents tell the story. Right. And that's going to affect the questions the kids ask. And so I, I'm very confident that there is a, a fellowship component to the composing of these Bible stories. And isn't that what we would suspect would be the case given who our God is right. and what he does and how he yeah. does it. The tr Trinitarian God. Mm -hmm. And so it, well, and I think that also speaks to that, that then is reflected in how we're meant to read it. And we've said this many times that the kind of the, the modern evangelical image of like the lone Bible reader, you know, sitting on a mountain somewhere studying their <laughs> Bible. I mean, that's good. I read my Bible alone. Like it's not that you shouldn't do that, but just that really it was generated by the community of faith for the community of faith to read in community. You yes. Know? And again, that doesn't negate individual Bible reading at all, but just to say that that is that that I think we need to think about our individual practice as being serving or subservient to kind of the group or the the communal practice. And that's one of the reasons why I love this Bible reading plan that we're doing together is because we are reading in community, even though right. we're not physically together as we read it. Right. Although Lisa's in my practice has been to read it together. Mm -hmm. And we've been, we've, because I'm also reading ahead. And so I'm doing it twice and I miss nights and she reads without me a lot of the time. A lot of Bible reading. A lot of Bible reading. <laughs> but uh, uh, when we read it together, it's been really neat to see um, our back and forth and how we understand things or perceive things just a little bit differently. Um, and I, I think that there's something that's missed I love that we do devotions the way we do devotions, and I'm not encouraging you to stop doing personal devotions. But if we were to do our devotions in community every morning, I think we would see a, a I don't know, a, a benefit or a fruit of that that we can't even, mm -hmm. can't even imagine. Yeah. Mm. I've seen that with us doing this. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think that maybe the last, just the last thing I want to say about that and then we can move on is, you know, especially in light of the kind of the compositional history, you know, if you will, of all these different texts, because we've referenced before that, mm, how should I put this, that it's almost like these Bible passages are like three dimensional, <laughs> that or even four dimensional, Ooh. like they, they exist through time. And so the thing that we're reading, you know, is not the story that Moses heard as a kid. And you just said that, right? Going back to Genesis. They're the stories he heard as a kid and the same, well, I guess he was really young, so I don't know if he would, but you know what I mean, you know, the stories that were passed around the Hebrew campfires and the slave slave quarters, you know, they were that, they were the his own thoughts, they were other people's versions of them, they were his editors coming hundreds of years later, you know, so it's like, and I think that in God's providence, and there's no way to prove this, this is just my my suspicion, my holy hunch, if you will, is that in God's providence, when the time came for these things to be fixed in text, like they had reached yes. what God wanted them to be. I mean, that's what I think. I mean, even the Gospel of John, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, the famous story about Jesus and the woman about to be stoned. You know, a good Bible will have a note that says this is not in the original manuscripts. And I think it wasn't. I don't think John wrote that. Somebody added it later. And I think they were right to. Like, I think yes. the Holy Spirit inspired that 
passage in John yes. to be added. Well, because we find it in Luke sometimes in mm-hmm. some of the ancient manuscripts. We find it in different places in right. John, but it belongs where it's at. Right. Or even thinking about like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like there are other Psalms. There are other Psalms of David that are not in the Bible. They're still around because we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. but like they're not in there. There are different versions of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There are different versions of Esther and Daniel. You know, and so it's like, what do we do with that? And I think that that I think it's not I mean, I think it's worthwhile to read those things if you're interested. It's not dangerous to do that or, or wrong. But I think just to appreciate that what we have, the stable text that we've had now for thousands of years is what God wanted it to be, mm-hmm. not, you know, these other things. Yes. And that doesn't make the other things bad. Again, you know, it's not it's not bad to read those things. Um, or if somehow we ever found some other epistle of Paul's, I don't know how we would ever know for sure that that's what it was, but let's just say we did. Sure, read it, learn from it, whatever, but it's not scripture. Nope. <laughs> and, you know, and we can be confident about that because it's not in here. Um, and again, that's not really a provable claim. I think that that is kind of a, it's a, a statement of faith, really, just that we're mm-hmm. trusting that, that what we have is, is what God wants us to have. I agree. All right, so next week we are reading 1 Samuel 22 through 2 Samuel 6, 11, and a whole bunch of different passages <laughs> from Chronicles, and Psalm 52, 54, 56, 57, and 142. <laughs> so, I'm looking forward to your summary about each and every one of these nope, passages. It's a grab bag. <laughs> it's a grab bag of passages. Well, and so... I'll, I'll summarize the plot as it occurs in Samuel, and then I'll make a few comments about Samuel and Chronicles. So what we see here is Saul's kind of the great David hunt, Uh, Saul running around the countryside hunting for David. And multiple times David has the opportunity to take Saul's life, and then he doesn't. It's very important to David that no one harm Saul, not because he particularly likes Saul, but because he respects the fact that Saul is Yahweh's anointed leader of the people. Uh, And I think that that is something that's very telling about David's priorities and David's character, that the honor of God is of paramount importance to David. And we saw that last week in in David and in the Goliath story is that it was Goliath's kind of blasphemy or Goliath's disrespect towards Yahweh that that prompted David to want to fight him, (laughs) to fight him for the honor of his God. And we also see here the death of Saul and and really the, the... the conclusion of, I think, what I would call the tragedy of Saul. Like, King Saul is a tragic character, and I think that we should pity him as we read. In some ways, he got dealt with the short end of the stick. <laughs> you know, he... I mean, this really is... I mean, it's quality literature. Like, mm-hmm. even just just as a story, I mean, it's worth reading and pondering and reflecting on, let alone as, as divine scripture of just the kind of the, the situation that Saul found himself in where there were just no, it seems like there were just no good ways forward, uh, especially after he failed, you know, to to annihilate uh, the Amalekites, I think it was, in the way he was supposed to. And he goes and visits a witch, <clears throat> which we could talk about if you have questions, you know, but just so he just is, it's a, t- it, it's a story to me of confusion and madness and failure. And it's sad. It's just, it's a sad story, the story of Saul. <laughs> Especially since his life ends in suicide, you know, and certainly because they had lost the battle and he didn't want to be taken captive. And as we've read in Judges and these other books, kings taken captive, it it usually went really badly for them after that. 
And so I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't judge him in principle for killing himself in that moment, just because I think it, it was a cleaner death than what was coming for him at the hands of his enemies. Um, so then moving into second Samuel, David mourns for Saul and certainly for Jonathan, He's anointed the king of Judah first, just Judah, and there's a bit of a civil war, uh, really, between the different tribes, the southern and northern tribes, which I think is portentous for what is to come in the history of the kingdom, uh, that even at this early stage, the south and the north are pitted against one another, which is a pattern that is repeated in many regions, in many people's histories, including our own. Yes, it is. The south and the north of of a country tend to uh, be pitted against one another. But eventually, David, I mean, he gets Saul's old general, he wins victories, he takes the city of Jerusalem, uh, which is more or less in the middle uh I, I guess it's more on the southern end but it's it's uh kind of in the middle between the it's two a good place between for the capital. two kingdoms it's a good place for the capital uh, and then our passage ends with david uh trying to bring the ark of the covenant from where it was into jerusalem and that doesn't go great for poor Uza. and uh, the ark has to hang out at Obed Edom's house for a while, and we'll find out what happens to it next week. So that's the story in Samuel. The Psalms obviously go along with that, uh, and then again, and we already kind of touched on this in the the question section. But just the the difference between Samuel and Chronicles is that Samuel Kings, those are two separate scrolls, you know, but they're really the same story. Yeah, part uh, one it's the same two. through line, part one and part two, and you know, if if you're part of Calvary, you know we've been preaching in Chronicles for months and months, and so hopefully we're a lot more familiar with kind of the emphasis and and the spirit of the book of Chronicles. And I think what I would say at this point is that Samuel Kings is telling the story of the kingdoms, but it is telling it from the, it's, it's focusing on human failure and disobedience. How did we get to the exile? Like that's the story is telling, and it ends badly. It's a tragedy. It ends with exile, you know, them going into exile and the temple destroyed. Whereas Chronicles is starting from exile and saying, okay, now where do we go from here? Yes. And so Kings Samuel Kings is a look into the past to say, how did this happen? Chronicles is looking into the future and saying, where do we go from here? And Chronicles is focused much more on the faithfulness of Yahweh, you know, and Clayton referenced this already. So we don't get a lot of stories about David's disobedience or his warfare or, or whatever else. And it's not because Chronicles is trying to lie to us. Again, ancient people weren't idiots. They knew what Samuel and King said. And so Chronicles is not just a rehash. It is a, it's a different telling. It's yeah. a different telling of the same events, of the same history, but with a very different emphasis. And you see that clearly, you know, in some of the stories, a couple of the passages we read next week, they're basically the same uh, and so it's not quite as evident, but I think as we as we journey further into Samuel Chronicles, you'll start to see the, I don't want to say a split, because they're not, it's not like they're opposites of each other, but you will be able to tell the difference mm-hmm. between between Samuel and Chronicles uh, as, we move, as we move forward. And so while it can be a little, it can feel a little, what's the word I'm looking for? Slow, I guess, to then read the same passage, basically about the same story again. Pay attention to the differences yes. because you will learn a lot between the differences between Samuel and Chronicles and to keep and to keep the big picture in mind. Samuel's focusing on human disobedience and failure. Chronicles is focusing on God's faithfulness and goodness. 
And then to think about your own life, obviously, because you could also write those two accounts about you, <laughs> one focusing on your failure and disobedience, one focusing about God's faithfulness and goodness, and both are indeed true. Uh, both are a part of the whole of what's going on. So that is next week's readings. Yeah. Do you feel like Samuel and Kings are a call for God's people to repent? And then Chronicles is a call for God's people to hope? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. We see in these chapters Saul going after David to kill him. Yeah. And it's <clears throat> it's a little... Um, it's a little surprising, given what we know to be the the way that their story together started, and and so I guess could you just speak to why is Saul trying to kill David? Why is Saul trying to kill David? Well, because he's going insane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think because Saul, for two reasons, Saul knows that his goose is cooked, and I think he knows that David is his replacement. Uh, I don't. I don't think that that's been said, but I think that knowing that Jonathan has made a covenant with David, like he's delegitimized himself as the heir to the throne willingly, that David has gathered a following of malcontents. Um, I think that's maybe at the start of 22 and the parallel passages in First Chronicles where it talks about all these people gathering to David. And now David didn't send out, as far as we know, he didn't send out some sort of call of like, everyone to me, you know, but just the, the people who were in debt, these escaped prisoners, people who were not happy with the state of things, right, who were ready for a new kingdom. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that might come up later on ah. in the story of the Bible. <laughs> you know, that these people are, are kind of gathering themselves to this leader. And so David, and the way that Samuel portrays it, I think David, David is a fascinating, fascinating, subtle character. (laughs) And so it can be hard to tell with him sometimes of like, did it just happen to happen like this? Or is David scheming? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because either one is possible. And David's a good guy, generally, you know, I mean, I think he's a man after God's own heart and that's all still true, but... Especially because so often, especially with the emphasis that Samuel puts on the heart and Yahweh turning or tweaking the hearts of the characters, we're just so often not given any insight into David's actual motivation. Now, the Psalms actually do when we, you know, jump over and, and, and read the Psalms. But in the narrative of Samuel, David does something, but his motivations are opaque, you know, and, and, and I think that that's intentional. Like, we're, we're meant to kind of read into that a little bit of like, or wonder, you know, why he's doing these things. But I would say because David over and over again refuses to kill Saul, that he knows that that will look good in the eyes of the kingdom. And so I'm sure that is part of it. But I think the fact that he keeps doing it tells us that he really, it really is, there is some, there is some, there is sincerity there that he really doesn't want to disrespect the Lord in, in, in assassinating Saul. Whereas Saul has no compunction about assassinating David. Uh, he doesn't. You know, and and in those times where David shames him, you know, and that's really part of what's happening is he's saying, hey, I had this opportunity. I didn't kill you. And so he's making Saul look powerless in the midst of his giant David hunt, you know, wild David hunt. Uh, So I think all of that is is wrapped into that, that it's, it's like David has almost formed a court in exile, you know, again, with these people coming, warriors coming. Uh, foreigner, foreign warrior units coming, you know. And so David has really established himself as what we would call today as like a warlord. Yeah. 
uh, a bandit warlord. <laughs> Bandit's not quite the one. right word. Yeah, yeah, he's a good bandit. Well, because like in the interactions with Nabal, right? I mean, it's like, look, your shepherds were with us and we didn't steal anything from you. Like we actually protected them. And so there's this sense that David is ingratiating himself, I think both because he is a good man and also, again, because he's he's slowly building support, mm-hmm. you know, in the hills of the for the hill folk, the troublesome hill folk, you know, that that he uh, didn't take anything from Nabal. But again, then they, you know, they send these envoys say, OK, so we didn't steal anything from you earlier. So give us a bunch of stuff now. And then when Nabal says no, and David's like, all right, we're going to come kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. That's so, a weird story. The banditry is in there. The uh-huh. bandit or well, the warlord. Doing in the the warlord. Uh, the Philistine territory. That's true. Yeah. The warlordness is definitely in there. Um, and so I think that, you know, any government on the planet is going to ride into the hills to try and kill the troublesome warlords. I mean, that's just that's what power does, is it can't stand the rising up of a mm-hmm. of a rival power. And so I think that's all of that is is why Saul's trying to kill David. Yeah. And the irony, of course, is the only reason David is out there as a bandit warlord is because Saul was afraid of him. That's true. And yeah. he drove him out. That's also true. Yeah. 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 Saul has created the monster that then he's trying to yep. trying to, to get I mean, and is being shamed by. It truly by. is a tragedy. Like everything Saul touches turns to David. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I've got a couple of questions. We're, we'll, we're going to take them out of the chronology a little bit. We're going to stick thematically with, with Saul here. Sure. So he sees a medium in 1 Samuel 28. Mm-hmm. Do you just want to talk about what's happening there a little bit? Sure. Well, I think it's always worth pointing out that uh, this passage is where George Lucas got the name of the moon that the Wookiees live on. Yeah, I was Endor. going to ask why there were no uh, why there were no Ewoks, not Wookiees. Ewoks. Sorry, sorry, Ewoks. I just uh, told on myself for not being a super nerd. For shame, Pastor Ben. <laughs> One of the hairy creatures in Star Wars. They I live on the, the moon super nerd of Endor. Team. Oh, I have never disputed that. <laughs> Yeah, which part of that would you like to talk about? Well, it's just a weird story. So, yeah, you know, I think this goes, and we've touched on this many, many times, of just the supernatural worldview. I I wish I could come up with another term, but I think that's the easiest way for us to say it and everybody to know what we're talking about. The supernatural worldview of the ancient Israelite people is not that, you know, don't go visit mediums and witches because they're full of nonsense. It's don't go visit them because they really are in contact with the spirit world. Uh, and you will be contaminated. You know, talk about the presence of death, calling up a deceased spirit. You know, they're all unclean. I mean, that's not really talked about in this, this story, but I mean, that's part of what's happening here. Whether it was really Samuel or not is open to debate. I mean, I think it was, but I know that many commentators think that either she was just faking and kind of ventriloquizing, you know, Samuel's voice, or that it was a demonic spirit or whatever. Uh, you know, that's, that. I think if you want to talk more about that, we can. But I think that the the reason why the, the, the law says that their witches are to be killed and driven out, and that Saul, it tells us several times, had actually done that, like he'd driven the, the witches from the land. 
obviously not very well since the Witch of Endor was still there and still in business since Saul knew where to find her. It's not like she was hiding. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that he, I think that thematically in, in terms of the story of the tragedy of Saul, this this clues us into just how confused and desperate he's becoming. And, and we talked about this last week, you know, he went to inquire of Yahweh and Yahweh didn't say anything back, you know, whether that was through visions or through the Urim and Thummim or whatever. And so I think he feels abandoned and he is abandoned by God. And so I think that this is a, this is Saul's attempt to try and contact the spirit world to get some insight into what to do. Yeah. And there's something that they've been using called the ephod. Um, to communicate or hear mm-hmm. from Yahweh. And it does say earlier in the story that the ephod is now with David. Right. And we see yeah. Yahweh speaking to David. Yeah. yeah. And at the same time that he's ceased speaking to Saul. Yeah. Okay. Um, does that mean that um, a person can be called down from heaven to speak with us if we are, uh, if we do the right things? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, you did say you believe it's Samuel. So how does that work? There's there's a lot of layers to this. <laughs> well, you know I got to ask the question. Let me hear your thoughts. So we are forbidden unanimously in the biblical witness from trying to contact the dead. And so I think that on a kind of a moral covenant obedience level no you may not do that you may not but yeah. can you i think that the story indicates that you can i think that i think that there the reason why i mentioned that you know there are commentators and scholars who think that it wasn't samuel at all is just because there's really no way to verify who are you actually talking to and i think evil spirits would love nothing more than to impersonate you know Loved someone and uh and sow division and confusion and fear which is what happens to saul you know i mean he does not walk away from that very encouraged you know i also think that there's a theological riddle a theological thing to be sorted through here is that i think my opinion my understanding would be is that the state of the dead now is different than it was then um, like, I don't think we would say that one, they call Samuel up out of the ground. Like it makes that very clear. And so we've talked about Sheol. And so it seems that the ancient Hebrew conception is that everyone went to Sheol, which was the underworld. There are references to being in Yahweh's presence, Enoch, you know, but of course he was caught up bodily, you know, and so it wasn't just his spirit. So, I mean, it seems like there was some conception that you could, you could be in Yahweh's presence, but that was exceptional at that point. And that everyone, righteous and unrighteous, went to the went to the realm of the dead, went to the underworld. I think again, moving into the New Testament, part of what we can understand that Jesus did in going to the dead was releasing the righteous dead from the underworld. And again, what does that really mean? What does that <laughs> look like? I don't know. All we can do is speak in symbolism and story, but I think that something really did change in yeah. In, quote unquote, wherever dead people go, (laughs) (laughs) that those who belong to the covenant with the creator do not stay in the underworld or they merely pass through it or they don't go at all. I mean, I don't know exactly what happens after we die. We'll find out. <laughs> you know, but we know that for those of us who belong to Jesus, we're, we're with him and he's not in the realm of the dead. You know, and so I think that that all of that to say, I think that the... Uh, we could conjecture that 
the state of of the dead now is different than it was in at this point now does that mean that you could contact unrighteous dead people perhaps but i would pastorally urge you <laughs> not to do that i can second that pastoral urge yes thank you pastor ben um because well you know i think this is worth touching on because it's in some ways it is becoming more prevalent just the idea of you know kind of the uh the lowbrow spiritism <laughs> is making a comeback right this now is. you know in terms of of going to see psychics and tarot cards and all that claptrap you know that <laughs> i think that it's just worth reiterating that the spiritual world is real it's more real than just what we see in front of us because if nothing else it's what provides meaning to what we see in front of us which means that if it's at all at all possible that there are deceptive evil spirits that want to mess with how we make meaning in the world or confuse us about what things mean then i mean that door should just remain firmly shut yes and again that's the unanimous teaching of the bible from beginning to end there is no never is it oh yeah that was a good idea for them to talk to the dead never ever ever is <laughs> no. that the case no <laughs> even if it's possible like it's just not it's just not something that we as as Yahweh's covenant people should do uh, for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. yeah okay thank you pastor ben well you know and so i think again we tend to want to shy away from the weird parts but like i think that that first samuel 28 i mean this is the bottom of the barrel for saul like mm-hmm. all of that to say like what he does here is very grave in both error. senses of the word you know that i mean it is truly an error uh truly you know if he was not what's the word out of favor really with god before like he would be now mm-hmm. because he did this thing well you know he, no other mm-hmm. at least i'm searching my memory like no other king of israel ever does i mean they some of the kings do some very terrible things but like this is the only time that we get one pictured as going to a witch to contact you okay. know spirits like this is the one time yeah. And the kingdom is is quickly taken away from him. It's almost as though if anyone were doubting whether or not Saul was unfit to be king, this story answers that question fully. Um, As David is gaining power and becomes the next king, you could imagine that there would be some question, did he take it from Saul? Is it not rightly David's? This story answers that question authoritatively. Mm -hmm. Um, Saul ought not be the king of Yahweh's people. Can I, can I shift? I mean, it's still the same sort of thing, but just yeah. not. Because I think that this, so this is one of those things that we just don't talk about very often, but that most people have opinions and many of us have experiences about maybe not co- trying to contact the dead, but having had experiences where we have been contacted by the dead. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you think about dreams about dead loved ones or, I mean, even just throughout Christian history, yeah. the people have encountered the saints you know, who are dead, (laughs) you know, and how do we explain that? What did Jesus see on the Mount of Transfiguration himself when he spoke with Moses and Elijah, uh, who are dead? Well, Elijah, I guess, was taken bodily into heaven, but Moses died. Like he died and the devil and the archangel Michael evidently disputed over his corpse, Mm -hmm. as the book of Jude tells us. And so I think I would just say that 
and again, this is my opinion, and I know that for some of us, this is like nails across the chalkboard of our rationality, but like, if all of this exists and is true, then that means that the righteous dead, or the, the covenant dead, I think are aware, it seems, they have some measure of awareness of us and I what's agree. going on, and that it seems that in God's goodness, in God's providence, that there are times where the dead are allowed, I don't know what the right word is, but that it's made possible for the dead to contact us. I think that's certainly true in the history of the church with just the number of times that the saints have appeared to people and not encourage them to do wickedness, you know, but right. encourage them like they serve to encourage the church. I think sometimes that can wander off a little bit, you know, when you get into some of the the hagiography and, hagiography and, and I think... Especially, and I, I'm not trying to just poop on the Catholics here, but like some Catholic devotion to saints and, and Mary especially really does seem to be bleeding into idolatry. And, you know, we can talk more about that if people have more thoughts. It's not supposed to, but no, it often does. It's not supp- and, the, and as you read the histories of these visions and experiences, the saints themselves never tell people to worship them. <laughs> like they're very clear about not doing that, you know, so that's not what's supposed to be happening. Um, but like, you know, I've, I had a very vivid dream shortly after my grandfather died, you know, of him. And it's like, was that, was I really in contact with him? Either way, it was an encouraging dream. Like it was a comfort in my grief, you know? And so I think pastorally as people have those experiences, I think we want to be careful not to just be like, well, it was just your imagination. Well, I think we can take it in the same way that we might take a word from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is in line with biblical truth, mm-hmm. if it is an encouragement in the faith, if mm-hmm. it is not an encouragement to go apart from the Yah- the will of Yahweh, then then perhaps it is a, a thing that has actually happened. At any point, if if it crosses any of those boundaries, it is not. A moment of the mm-hmm. a visitation from the righteous dead, yeah. mm-hmm. and I do not take this. I mean, the story that we're reading is explicit in this. Do not hear your pastors talking about this and think, "Oh, so I'm going to go and try and talk to now one of my right. uh, my uh, deceased relatives." I think that you can speak. Um, you to I mean, I I when my dad died. I mean, sometimes I talk to him, not in an attempt to begin a conversation. Right. Right. But because that was helpful and healing and so on. Right. That is a different thing than trying to <laughs> and contact not to him. get information. Right. right. I mean, Saul's trying to get information from Samuel, and that's yeah. a very different sort of a thing. Yeah, we uh, we took that in a direction, didn't we? Well, you know, again, it's just not something we talk about often, no, but a lot not. of us have experiences Questions. and opinions, and I think it's good to talk about. Absolutely. All right. So uh, we're going to switch gears hard here. Um, we find David having as many as three wives mm. in this, in these readings this week. Is that okay? Or are we supposed to see this as evidence of, uh, moral failure on David's part? So it was generally acceptable at the time. It's like no one would have batted any moral eyes at David or any of these figures having multiple wives. Generally, it was the wealthy that could, I mean, because you had to be able to support, you know, multiple wives in a large family. And so I think there is a, a sense of there's a wealth kind of gap or, or inequality dynamic happening there. You know, I think that 
it, it, it seems to me that in the Old Testament that it's either looked on neutrally, like it's just reported, which seems to be generally the case with David, or the fact that a figure has taken multiple wives usually leads to chaos and heartache. And so I think that, that these stories are reflecting a value that, generally speaking, no, you know, you don't want to do that. It's a bad idea. Um, Yahweh does not have multiple wives. You know, he's he is wed or he's covenanted to his one people, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think that as marriage is meant to be a reflection of that covenant, which we see from starting in Genesis and moving on, then I think the implication of that is you know, that the, uh, the, whatever you want to say, the ideal, the intent, uh, is for that to be monogamous is for there to be one, one man and one woman in a marriage. Okay. I think because I think that, so I think that multiple marriage is then an accommodation to the social norms and the realities of, of that day and age. And we've seen that kind of throughout the law as well, that there are the Lord makes accommodations, not because this is what he wants or because it's best, but just because it's just where they're at and, mm-hmm. and kind of where just what needs. And I don't want to say what needs to be the case, but it's just where it's just where they're at. OK, I mean, slavery would be another example of that. I think that Yahweh desires that no human being be held as property of another human being. And yet we have many rules and regulations for slaves throughout the Old Testament um, because, you know, I think that. The Lord wants to make it so that certainly to regulate and try and righteousify this bad thing, but on a trajectory of one day they're not being slaves, one day they're not, you know, one day they're not being multiple marriages, which is indeed what we see happen in the history of Israel. By Jesus' day, it seems like that really was not common anymore outside. Of, well, even like the Roman emperor himself or King Herod really just had a single wife. Um, and so it seems like that really had fallen away. I have two more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a very specific one to a Bible story that I just don't know much about, and I'm hoping you could explain to me. So in Second Samuel 2, um, we have these opposing armies kind of facing off against one another, and we have Abner and Joab having a conversation. And they say, let's have some hand-to-hand fighting in front of us. And so they say, all right, so that... They stood up and people were counted off, 12 men for for ben, or for uh, Saul and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into the opponent's side and they fell down together. So that place was called the Field of Daggers. Um, then after that is a battle. What's happening there? Big picture. Oh. In the ancient world. There was no such thing as like what we would think of as diplomacy or like foreign international relations. Like the way that countries and tribes related to one another was generally through warfare or Mm -hmm. pillaging. It was widespread. It was systemic. It was pervasive. Like that's just what everybody did. You know, Um, once you had conquered some other people, then maybe you would have what we would consider to be diplomacy or the cutting of covenants or whatever else. But that happened after you had militarily conquered them. And so I think that, that part of what had developed, uh, at least in ancient Greece and Crete, was this idea of like having champions fight rather than a bunch of bloodshed of, of a whole army fighting together. Mm-hmm. And so they would do that. 
Uh, that is it's perhaps like David and Goliath. Right. That is what's happening. You know, so the Philistines were were Greek Minoan people. They had come migrated from that part of the Mediterranean. And so Goliath steps forward as a champion rather than everybody fighting. And that's why he challenges who's going to come fight me. So did Israel learn that from the Philistines? I don't know. I, as far as I know, it was not as common in the Middle East uh, for, for kind of this champion warfare to happen. So it could be kind of a Philistine influence there. But I think that is what's happening is that they're saying, let's have a team of champions fight each other. But then what happens is they all die. Because they have the same God. Right. And so there is no, so the, the, the championship fight is not decisive, Okay, you know? And so for the Philistines, when David killed Goliath, that meant they had just lost. That's why they run away mm-hmm. and get defeated because they just lost because Israel's champion had killed their champion. And so in this, this kind of Israel Judah face off, you know, nobody won. It was indecisive, which meant that they then had to engage in, in a conventional battle. Okay. So like with David and Goliath, the idea is the Philistine God and Israel's God are fighting through mm. the champion. Mm. Champion winning shows which God is stronger. Yep. Here, since they worship the same God, right. they all fall over dead. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It was just a very weird story. Mm-hmm. I was curious for your perspective. Mm-hmm. All right. I have one more kind of big question. So... In Samuel, I know that we have a less, and also in Chronicles, but in Samuel, we have a less positive picture of David than we do in Chronicles. But still, David is probably seen as a protagonist. We can mm-hmm. put that, I mean, especially as he relates to Saul or contrasts with Saul, mm-hmm. he's he's good. Yeah. He's also a violent man. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we see David doing a lot of is battle. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when he's when he's staying with Akish and he's going around the Philistine areas, he's killing everybody so that there are no survivors to tell anyone what happened. Um, we at Calvary come from a, a tradition which is was at one point very strongly pacifist. Our church has had different perspectives on that for a long time, but I think I don't think you have to be a pacifist to be uncomfortable with how comfortable God's chosen here is with violence. And I guess I'd, I'd like it if you'd speak to a little bit of why is it okay for David to be so violent, given that we have a God who values peace? I mean, I, I think going back to the different emphasis that Samuel Kings is focused on disobedience and failure, and you're right that, that David is the protagonist, but I think that, you know, how does it square? I mean, I think it doesn't, but I think that's really entirely the point. Um, is that people in different ways consistently fail to image Yahweh in the way that we were supposed to be, you know? So it's like, I think we could put that question to any of us, the book about my life, the book about your life, like how do we square being a good Yahweh follower with the mischief that we get up to or anybody, you know? Uh, and so I think that specifically with David and this, this aspect of violence, you know, we talked about this a couple of times with some of the stories in the law of like we are we're dealing with an with ancient stories with just different values from a society that's different than ours. We're lucky that we live in a stable civilization, you know, where people trade and go to do their jobs and no one has to make them. And, you know, when our people are hungry, we don't have to march up to Metamora and steal their grain. And God help us. We never will have to because <laughs> mm-hmm. they'd probably beat us. But uh <laughs> You know, so it's, 
I think that it, I don't want to just say, well, it was a different time, you know, because I think that can just be dismissive of some of the tension there. Um, I, you know, I think there is, there is something really to, to wrestle with. You know, you think about Jesus. So he, he read these stories, heard these stories about David. He identified as the son of David. And yet, you know, his merry band of misfits and malcontents did not run around the hills doing banditry like other messianic figures did, you know, in that day and age. And so Jesus read these stories full of violence as they are and did not see that as as being indicative of, of what Yahweh wanted or, or what it would look like for the Shalom kingdom to really be established on earth. Okay. So these are, are things that we can look at as either David's imperfections or flaws or just that the the shalom kingdom was not possible yet something else was being sorted out beforehand sure i mean i think we can look at it that way I, I, again we're not the bible is not tell, giving us a bunch of things to do and so we have to stop reading these stories like that we just have to we're not taking easy today's moral lesson you know from the story of david and again many of these stories i think were intended to to call forth exactly this sort of response, you know, not that, oh, okay, so violence is all right. Right. You know, but rather to sit back and go, hmm, you know, why did he act like that? How do we act? You know, what, what would I do in that situation? You know, and really to try and, again, to form us in wisdom, to form us in, in the righteousness that comes from God. Uh, certainly that same process was happening in David, but like us, you know, it was not uh, completed at any point in his mortal life. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Don't you love it when I deviate from script? It's fine. We'll cut it. I'm in charge of it today. Yeah, I still see it before it gets Dang posted. Dang it! <laughs> I always do a little snippy snippy.